Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. My name's Rob Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and today it's all brains. That's right. Uh, we have a lot of brain content going on elsewhere in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed this week. So we figured, well, we got to do a brain film. There's plenty to choose from. It was actually quite difficult to decide on one. Uh, but we're we're also this this is kind of double purpose though because we've been we've been trying to hit some other um, countries in our Weird House Cinema selections, and today's Weird House Cinema selection allows us to uh, check Canada off the list. Uh, so it's oh, is brand... this our first Canadian movie? Yeah, I believe it is. I believe it's our first Canadian film, uh, and and you can you can taste the uh, the Canadian sensibilities in it. I feel. Yeah, so, I mean, one thing to get out of the way right at the beginning is that this is a brain monster movie. And, yes. it, uh, you know, who can deny a good brain monster movie? You know, you got Fiend Without a Face, you got the classics. And this one is a sort of updated version of that 50s vibe. But the other way to look at The Brain, 1988, is that it is a pretty much perfect mix of Videodrome and Final Sacrifice. <laughs> yeah, it is kind of. Yeah, they're definitely with Videodrome. Uh, we'll we'll come back to that again and again. This is in many ways your your discount Videodrome. This is your 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 bottom shelf Videodrome selection. This is your um, uh, we have Videodrome at home, uh, Timmy moments. Uh, <laughs> we've got, uh, yeah, we got plenty say, of Cronenberg yeah. back at home. Yeah, yeah, yeah we got plenty of Cronenberg back at home. It's this. But none of this is to say that this film is terrible. That you shouldn't watch it. I, I found this to be very enjoyable. Um, but no, one yeah, does the, get that sense. This was very fun B-horror. Yeah. Uh, th- thumbs up to this one, though. It absolutely is. Uh, it, it has very Cronenberg ripoff vibes. Should we do the elevator pitch to to help ground us here? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So the elevator pitch for The Brain 1988 is a self-help guru and a giant alien brain with pointy teeth come together to create a cult of mindless psychic thralls through the influence of a Canadian local access TV show. And it is up to one extremely immature teen rascal and his girl Friday to defeat the teleneural conspiracy before it takes over planet Earth. Yep, that, that's absolutely accurate. Again, the, the Videodrome vibes are strong, and it, it definitely pays homage to past killer brain films. You mentioned Feed with, Fiend Without a Face, 1958, uh, a horror film, one of the few horror films or a, a certain select number of horror films that you can find in the Criterion Collection. That one is about brains and spinal columns being taken over by outside alien minds and then coming alive and crawling out of people's bodies. The other key film that it clearly was inspired for, uh, by is the 1957 film, The Brain from Planet Aros, which fi- features this big old alien brain with eyes floating around. Uh, so in, in many ways, this film feels like a love letter to those two films in, in particular. Especially Brain from Planet Aros, because it's it's just a giant brain. Like yeah. the Fiend Without a Face has brains that are normal-sized brains coming out of people's bodies. I think they turn invisible somehow, and they attack. It, so they're, literally, there are scenes of people like shooting at swarms of brains flying at them. Uh, but this one is one giant brain, and it's very confusing because the giant brain has a face. It has eyes, and it has a, a nose, and it has a mouth with pointy teeth, but a brain with a face is generally just a head. So what this actually is, is a head without a skull or skin. Yeah, what it is, is they they probably saw Fiend without a face. And you know, they're like, this is good. But you know what it's lacking? Face. We need to put a face on it. Yeah, it needs a face. It kind of looks like a big gorilla face, too, especially in the poster art for this Uh film. Um, I, I remember seeing that years and years ago, and I got the sense of a monster gorilla as opposed to a brain. And then this movie is all about the brain. You can tell that the director was in love with the brain puppet they have created because it starts with the brain. It ends mm-hmm. with the brain. It's not like Jaws where there's a long, slow build up to it. They're just like instantly throwing the brain right at you and they let you get a long, good look at it. Yeah. Before you see a single human character, you see the brain writhing around. I think it's preface at this point. Yeah. It doesn't have a face yet, but writhing around in its uh, nutrient bay, uh, flogging its tentacles and or spinal column around. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then it just gets so much screen time, so much screen time. And it, it looks good. It looks it's 
it's definitely that like you've you've made the distinction before. It looks schlock uh, monster movie good. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's never any doubt that this is something that was lovingly created in somebody's garage. But it, but but it, it's it's always entertaining to look at. I like one thing about the the face of the brain is that. The brain grows a face right after it eats a human. And so you kind of wonder if, like, it learned how to do face by taking a human inside of it. There's one part where it, like, the lobes of the brain kind of peel open like lips as mm-hmm. the two hemispheres open up along the fissure in the middle. And then the cerebrum just gobbles up this lady. And then right after that, it just kind of poops a face out of the front of it. Yeah. And this is a film that it, it doesn't help you a lot. It doesn't give you a lot of, of details to go on, which means there's not a lot of, uh, you know, exposition to bog you down. Mm-hmm. So if you like watching a weird film and trying to figure out on your own what's happening, then this this may be the film for you. Yes. If you're thinking, I would like a, a Canadian horror thriller with media and brainwashing vibes, something along the lines of early 80s Cronenberg, like Scanners or Videodrome, but less, uh, less interesting, less subversive, less depressing and dark and grimy, and more just kind of rubber monster and, and slime fun, this is what you're looking for. That's right. Well, let's have just a sample of the audio here. Uh, I'm not sure that we even have a a bit from a trailer because I was having a hard time finding an actual English language trailer for this film. Uh, But we're going to play something for you right now. Your mediocre mind cannot begin to comprehend the importance of my work. I suggest you look into your own neurotic behavior, then perhaps you will understand your continuing negativity. You have to stop this insane research. That thing isn't satisfied just controlling the minds of the people who watch your TV show. It's apparent you and I will no longer be able to work together. Fine with me. But wait till I tell people what's really going on around here. Now take that thing and bury it where it belongs. All right, so who made this thing? All right, so let's let's start at the top with the director, uh, Ed Hunt, or Edward Hunt, as I think uh, they may be actually cited on this. Raised in L.A. but moved to Canada in 1969 and clearly brought the B-movie bug with him in that move. Uh, he made a, a film in 1977 titled Starship Invasions, which starred Robert Vaughn of, of Bullet and Lawyer commercial fame. Uh-huh. And, We've uh, actually... And Christop- oh, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, did you know... That, uh, in our house, we've got a magnet on our fridge that's got Robert Vaughn on it that's for some local personal injury lawyer in Atlanta. Oh, yeah. And it, it doesn't identify – like it's not – it makes it look like this is a guy who works for the law firm. He's like pointing a stern finger. He kind of looks like Polly Walnuts from The Sopranos, like he's going to beat you up. Uh, he's dressed in a suit uh, and, and he looks like tough. He's going to fight for you. But then right underneath it, it says Robert Vaughn, spokesperson. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah, they used to air these on television in Atlanta all the time. Uh, maybe they still do, and I just don't see them because um, I don't. You know, just because Robert Vaughn's dead doesn't mean he can't still, um, you know, be the spokesman for a law firm. Yeah, uh, they put Fred Astaire in a vacuum commercial after he died. They can put uh, Lyndon Johnson and Forrest Gump. Why not get Robert Vaughn to just make lawyer commercials from beyond the grave until a million years from now? Yeah. Now, Christopher Lee, his co-star in that film, as far as I know, has not done lawyer commercials. But that, that would be impressive if he had. So anyway, Ed Hunt, uh, he did a 1981 horror movie called Bloody Birthday. And uh, the brain was really the tail end of his main period, his heyday of making films. Uh, as he didn't direct another film until 2014's Halloween Hell, which apparently starred Eric Roberts as Dracula, which I think is all you really need to know about that film. If it starred Eric Roberts in uh, the 21st century, then, uh, you know, draw your own conclusions. <laughs> Wait, but that would also count out the uh, the Christopher Nolan Batman films. That didn't star Eric Roberts. <laughs> Uh, but no, I, Eric, I, Eric Roberts, um, his presence in a film is not necessarily a good sign, mm. but he's been in some things that I love. So, um, yeah, he, he was, he was probably in the best, um, for my money, uh, HP Lovecraft, uh, film. Uh, I forget what it was called, though. Uh, no. but he played like a wizard in it. It was pretty good. Okay. Okay. Wait a minute. Uh, a blind choice right now. Two movies you haven't seen. One in which Eric Roberts plays Dracula. Another in which post two thousands Rutger Hauer plays Dracula. Which one do you take? Ooh, see, those are both. Th- this, these are similar um, omens, right? Uh-huh. Because they were both in some horrible films. But individually, I, I like them both as as performers, as actors. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I guess I'd I'd go with Rudger. Uh, uh, yeah. I'd, I'd I'd probably suffer for it, but I would go with with Rudger Hauer. Uh, uh, then what you are looking for is the Dario Argento Dracula movie that I have never managed to watch more than about thirty seconds oh, of. Oh man, yeah, it's, I know that exists. But... Doesn't look good. Uh, okay, so here's the big question that was just haunting me while I was watching this. Uh, I tried to Google it and I couldn't figure it out, but somehow you must have, have come across an information source that I couldn't. Where was this filmed? Because this movie features uh, some very familiar looking Canadian highways. Have you ever driven around in Canada? You, you, you will see some familiar looking sort of architecture, you know, residential architecture and highway signs and stuff. But also uh, I, there's this big building in it that is sort of the brainwashing cult center in the movie. And I was wondering, what is this building? Is this some like school with cool architecture? Were you able to figure this out? Yes, it is the uh, headquarters or one of the headquarters of a nefarious organization that wants to make exact copies uh, <laughs> of things. It's the, it's the Xerox Research Center of Canada. Ah. Uh, and it's, uh, it's, in, uh, it's in Ontario or outside of Ontario. Somewhere, it's in, within Ontario, sorry. Okay. Uh, but, um, yeah, that's what it is. Uh, it, <laughs> I'm definitely the outsides, and I suspect the interiors in this film as well, because there are some fabulous factory interiors uh, that look very authentic and in use. Yeah, but there are also these interesting atria with these very high ceilings and these mm -hmm. terraced zigzagging walkways with interesting looking railings. It's just a cool building. Yeah, that and some some suburbs that look like Freddy Krueger should show up in any moment. You know, it's just right. like that yeah. that that eighties level of uh, of excess uh, in housing. Yeah, but uh, uh, but now that now that you say Ontario, that makes sense. It does somehow look a little bit more eastern than the areas I was thinking of, like in Alberta. Yeah, and, and I can't remember the exact city uh, in uh, in Ontario, um, uh -huh. but it's it's in Ontario. Okay, um, you can go visit it. I'm sure they want people to to show up and ask about the brain. Right, uh, you can take the brain tour. <laughs> Uh, all right, well, let's move on to the writer on this one. Uh, briefly, um, an individual by the name of, of, name of Barry Pearson, who wrote various things. But uh, the one that looked most interesting looking at the filmography is Iron Road, a 2009 TV miniseries directed by David Wu and starring Lee Soon, uh, Sam Neill, and Peter O'Toole. What? And, yeah, and this is, the, this is the summary from IMDb. Quote, a poor but feisty Chinese woman disguised as a boy joins the railroad crew in the Rocky Mountains to search for her long-lost father and falls in love with the son of the railroad tycoon. Sounds kind of neat. Is Sam Neill the son of the railroad tycoon, or is he the railroad tycoon? He, I guess he must be the... 2009 seems kind of late for Sam Neill to be playing the, the love interest. Yeah, but, I guess so, yeah. But who knows? Then who, who does Peter O'Toole play? I'm not sure. Let us he know. Plays the train. It. He is the he is the locomotive. <laughs> Peter O'Toole. All right. Um, let's uh, let's talk about the, some of the humans that are acting in this film, though. Um, okay. Because first of all, the really big one. Uh, this is a film that has a mad scientist type character in it. Uh, we, mm -hmm. we have a lot of questions about their identity, but the actor playing them. Is, is awesome. It is David Gale, and the character uh, that David Gale is playing is Dr. Anthony, either Blake or Blakely, <laughs> depending yeah. on who you're asking. Everything on the internet said Blakely, like Blake L-Y, but yeah. I watched this movie. I am certain they were saying Blake, unless they were just, unless the L-Y was silent. Did you ever hear anybody in the movie say Blakely? I never heard anyone say Blakely. And in yeah. fact, I... Fooled myself into thinking they were saying Dr. Gale at one point just because uh, uh -huh. the actor's name was, Dr. <laughs> was David Gale. So uh, David Gale is a tremendous uh, villainous character actor. I don't know a lot of his work other than that he was in Reanimator, but he was the villain in Reanimator. And he has this excellent, conceited, smug uh, elderly patrician character energy. Uh, he, in some ways, he by having a kind of like elongated face and very uh, upper crust Yale mannerisms, he kind of reminds me of John Kerry, former U.S. Senator and Secretary of State. Uh, but but with a with a more like you know like he's always yeah. like rubbing his twiddling his mustache, though he doesn't have one. He's very clean shaven. Yeah, he has this great presence because he has this this wonderfully expressive gaunt face. He has these piercing eyes, great voice, uh, and 
Yeah, he has this smile that when he, he it seems like his natural smile is for one side to sort of sneer, like he has an anatomical sneer just built into his countenance. Yes, uh, which I really like. He and it, as far as actors, he reminds me of. He has there's like a little bit of Christopher Lee there. I feel, mm-hmm. and also a little bit of um, uh, what's his name, uh, Dano Herlihy. Was that? Oh, Dano Herlihy. Yeah, the yeah. the uh, the old man from RoboCop or the villain from Halloween Three. Yeah. Now, uh, Gale was was younger than both of those actors I just mentioned. Uh, Gale uh, lived 1936 through 1991, so he sadly died way too young. He uh, he died uh, due to heart surgery complications. Uh, he managed to cement himself as a, as a B movie icon before that, largely due to Reanimator, in which he played uh, Doctor Hill, and I think spends most of the first movie and all of the second movie as just a head in a pan. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, like literally chewing scenery uh, at times. You you can just imagine that like even after his head is removed, he is getting immense pleasure from denying younger scientists tenure. Yeah. He's like, you will never be accepted at this university. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's in, in the part of the, the tragedy is that like you look at his filmography prior to Reanimator and, it, you know, he did a fair amount of TV work. I think he worked in the New York stage uh, before that uh, British born, but uh, but sort of came up in the New York stage. And after Reanimator, you can see that he's suddenly getting all these horror parts because now he's branched off into this new world, you know. Uh, you see him show up in Pulse Pounders, Tales from the Dark Side. He was in the movie uh, The Giver that we've mentioned before that was Screaming Mad George's film. Mm-hmm. He was in a film called The uh, the Sinjineer. I guess it's like <laughs> like Sin engineer or something from 1990 um yeah he was he was really like cementing himself as this genre staple uh, i even read that he was going to be the villain in ticks that uh, monster movie oh. that we've both seen about killer ticks yeah oh we we, we rented that from videodrome at some point but i don't yeah. remember who the villain in the movie was i just remember ticks I was looking at it, and I guess it was the Clint Howard role, though Clint <laughs> Howard and David Gale are two actors that are just like, miles apart. Like, they're both tremendous fun, but I don't think of think of them as competing for the same part, you know? Yeah. So, anyway, uh, yeah, Gale didn't, ultimately didn't have that many horror B-movie uh, credits, uh, that many weird roles, but uh, the ones he did have certainly stuck with us. Uh, and, and this movie's uh, uh, no exception. He, he really has quite a, a fun presence in this. I would say this movie is all about the villains because we haven't yeah. even gotten to the, the, the young heroes yet, the main characters, uh, because they almost don't matter. This movie is just about the villains. So you've got Dr. Blake, uh, played by David Gale here, is like the top villain under the mm-hmm. brain, of course. Yeah. And then you've got the henchman character who I – absolutely adored is played by this actor named george buza b-u-z-a maybe buzza but i guess it would be buza and i had this this tickling mental experience where every time buza was on screen i was like he looks so familiar i must know him from seeing him in things throughout the years but i i couldn't really figure out from what Booza is like, you know, you, you hear about figures that show up at all, like these pivotal moments in history, mm-hmm. uh, but, but are largely unobserved. Like Booza is, is, is that. Like he's, he has been in everything. He, and, and not only is he an actor, he's also done a ton of voice acting. So, for instance, one of his most well-known roles was voicing a beast on the 90s X-Men cartoon. Oh, yeah, Okay. Uh, but he also did – he was in both droids and and Ewoks, both of the Star Wars animated series back in the day, the old ones before they were, um, you know, good. Uh, so, <laughs> so yeah, he's, he's just been in been all sorts of things. But the weird thing is, like, watching this film, I, I recognized him and yet could not place a single thing that I'd actually seen him in. Like, yeah. it, it, it's, it was weird. Exactly the same mental experience here. But – I also realized that George Buza is a type. Mm-hmm. We, we need to discuss this. This is a very important category of older male character actor, the Buza face. And so I, I know there are other examples that aren't coming to mind, but, uh, but a few that do would be like George Buck Flower, who's in – you know, all kind of like old westerns, and in uh, in they live, and then William Tokarski of Too Many Cooks fame. Mm-hmm. There is something to do with like a like an older male with like very strong facial hair and usually a very heavy eyebrow line. 
Yeah, the brow is key uh, uh, with this actor. And so it should come as no surprise to anyone that he had a bit part, one of his early roles in uh, Jean-Jacques Onod's 1981 caveman picture, The Quest for Fire, hmm. alongside uh, far far better known brow-based actors, Ron Perlman and Everett McGill. <laughs> well, I've never put those guys together before on the on the strong brow. But yes, you're right. I mean, it's a caveman picture. So, uh, you know, right. that's, that's clearly on, on the brain. Um, uh, as far as his physicality, though, he is a he's a big fella. Yeah, you know he's he's a, a bit rotund, mm-hmm. uh, but he is also very tall. Uh, mm-hmm. I think his his height that was listed on the internet is six four. So this guy's a monster. Uh, <laughs> so you know how some people love scenes in movies where Tom Cruise runs. That's a particular mm-hmm. cinematic fetish some people have is the Tom Cruise running scene. And he does it in most of his scenes. There's just extended shots of him sprinting across flat <laughs> spaces. I mean, really, uh, I feel like that, but for George Buza. This movie has several George Buza running scenes, and I literally had to rewind them. I just wanted to watch them over and over. Yeah, they're so weird because he's Buza's just booking it in these scenes, just yeah. straight out flat sprinting. In, you get the impression that maybe uh, Ed, the director, didn't know how to instruct people running or there was some breakdown in communication because I feel like you don't really need to run that fast to get the sense of chasing after somebody in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's just booking it and yeah. and he's he's wearing all white, which doesn't help. It just makes him look even larger and um, and, and maybe even more like he shouldn't be running that fast, you know, like I might get concerned yeah. for his health. Uh, yeah. So he's wearing like a, a nurse's scrubs, like the, all, this all white outfit. His uh, we should mention also his facial hair. He has a goatee that is so thick and luxurious. <laughs> it's like a mink stole, you know, it just looks absolutely glossy and super thick. Like uh, uh, the, the warm fur coat of a, of a northern region's dwelling animal. Yeah. But yeah, so all of that, all of that glory at full sprint. Yeah. Sometimes it's, it's, carrying an axe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it, indeed. His facial hair is glorious. And, um, you know, I was looking at his at his tremendous filmography, and I noticed that he he's voiced Santa Claus before, but he also played Santa in the 2015 horror movie, A Christmas Horror Story, <laughs> in which he fights Krampus. I haven't seen this, Joe. <laughs> I have watched this with my dad. <laughs> One year for Christmas, we arrived at my parents' house, and my dad, I think he had just finished watching it and, uh, and like, backed it up to the beginning. He was like, you've got to see this. And, yep, George <laughs> Booza as Santa Claus. Uh, all right. Well, we'll have more to say about Booza as we, we progress here. But I guess just to run through a few other people, uh, uh, let's see. Tom uh, Bresnan plays Jim. Jim is our, 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 our hero. He's the, the main male kid. He's uh, he's identified more in the movie by his last name. His character is James Jim Majalewski or Majalewski. Ah. And everybody's usually calling him Majalewski. And there is at least one point in the movie where I caught the movie spelling its own main character's <laughs> name wrong. Uh, because so the evil brain monster communicates through it uh, through a computer screen to its henchmen with words on the screen. Mm-hmm. And there's one part where it spells his name and it's spelled wrong. It spells it like Majewelewski. Ah, well, Tom does a good job playing Jim. Nothing really to write home about, but it's fine. Uh, like, <laughs> likewise, uh, the uh, actor Cynthia Preston plays his love interest Janet, and again, perfectly fine. Nothing really to write home about here, but um, uh, but she is a Canadian actress uh, that's been in a lot of things, including the recent Jack Ryan series on Amazon. She was in the 2013 Carrie remake, and she's popped up on the TV series American Gods. She, uh, the main thing I remember about her is actually just the color scheme of her sweater in the second half of the movie, which is very Miami Vice. It's this combination <laughs> of like light blue and pink. Yeah. You know, you know that Miami Vice color scheme? Yep. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, the, her sweater does as good a job as, as she does in the film. Oh, no, I didn't mean to be mean. <laughs> I mean, she's fine. No, no, she's fine. Yeah, yeah. I, I legitimately mean that both of these actors do a good job, young actors getting it done in a movie that's you know, not meant for the top shelf, but, you know, mm-hmm. it's fine. Uh, now, there's an actress in the film named Christine Kosick who has the distinct honor of being the first character in the film to be eaten alive by the hemispheres of the brain. That's right. She plays Vivian, who is the uh, 
the brain crew's other minion, uh, she, she pops up. She seems to be like a real medical professional. Like she's just trying to do her job. Meanwhile, her coworkers are trying to hypnotize people with brain poison. Yeah. Yeah. So she doesn't last too long, but, but yeah. while she's on screen and then she pops up later as kind of a hallucination, uh, like a, 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 an avatar taken on by the brain when mm-hmm. it's messing with Jim. Uh, while she, when she's in the film though, she, she has this kind of like solid B movie vixen, uh, vibe to her. So she's, you know, she's entertaining and then, then she's eaten by that brain. Uh, it looks like the the actor uh, Cossack. She she wasn't in much besides this. I think she has two other credits. And if you look her up on IMDb, her IMDb photo is her being eaten by the brain. <laughs> <So> <laughs> Whether that was nice. her choice or her agent's choice, or well, I don't know who edits those IMDb pages. Whoever made that choice, it's a good one. Thumbs yeah. up. Yeah, but she's she's good at it. Um, yeah, good sense of humor. Yeah. You know, one thing I liked about this movie was the music. The opening credits had some fun, uh, had some fun kind of kicking into high gear electronic music that was paired with a red Blade Runner title style text that set the scene pretty well. Yeah, yeah. The music in this one is actually quite good. Uh, it's an electronic score by Paul Zaza, a Canadian musician who's done a lot of uh, film and TV work over the years. He composed the score for 1981's My Bloody Valentine, 1980's Prom Night, mm. and of course, 1983's A Christmas Story. <laughs> really? To name a few, yeah. <laughs> So he seems to be, you know, diverse talent uh, here. He can do a lot of different types of scores. Uh, But this one in particular has a lot of like glittering synth cascades and some spooky drum machine beats, you know, in the background that kind of a thing. Yeah. Uh, So like, yeah, it's cheesy 80s movie music, but it's it's the good version of that. Yeah, yeah. So I actually listened to this all morning while I was working on notes for this. Oh. and Well, not all morning, but the period of the morning in which I worked on notes for this, I played, played it. Because it's on Spotify, You can and, and pretty much anywhere you get digital music these days, you can look up the soundtrack by Paul Zaza for The Brain. And it's all tremendous, but then there's also this vocal track on there titled Right Now. And, uh, and, and there's like a female vocalist singing. And the, the full chorus is Right Now, You Better Show Me Your Mind. Which is Wait, great because it's the brain. So it's like a pop single for yeah. for the film. Yeah, God, that is a thing I miss. Is the uh, it was a big thing in the '90s to have a pop song from the original motion picture soundtrack. So a Will Smith movie would have a track that went with it, like Wild Wild West or something, yeah. or Men in Black. Uh, <laughs> and I I miss things like that. I, I like it when it when there is an original pop song for the film. Yeah, it gives you something to play immediately over the end credits uh, uh-huh. oftentimes. I really like that, too. Um, now, speaking of the sound in this movie, I just have to say, this is one of those where I had to put subtitles on just because there were so many either low talkers or like the, the audio for the the, uh, the dialogue was just so much lower. Weird uh, that I had, yeah. Yeah, so I had, it, not when Gail was talking, not when people were screaming, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but the rest of the time, like anytime a teenager is talking to another teen, I just couldn't understand a word of it and, and had to, you know, it's either turn up the volume to mm-hmm. where the neighbors are complaining about the subsequent screams or it's just read stuff as it happens. So Yeah, their friend Willie, I don't think I heard a word he said in the movie yeah (laughs) okay should we do the full plot breakdown let's let's do it so one of the first things we get in the film is just a brain in a big dish with green liquid bubbling all over the place so they they let you know right from the beginning this is a brain monster movie yep and then we cut to a standard Canadian suburban household, and there is a, a I guess, a mom watching TV while her sort of uh, moody teen daughter is up in her room, uh, I think, putting on emo makeup. And this thing comes on TV, and it's this guy played by David Gale. He he comes out, and it shows a uh, a sign displaying to the audience that says "Applaud more, smile more," <laughs> uh, which was pretty good. And the title of this TV show is "Independent Thinkers." We get a voiceover that says, "Here's your guide to independent thinking, Doctor Anthony Blake." And Gail comes out, and he he's doing a self-help guru routine. It's the kind of thing you might have seen for, I don't know, it's probably kind of like the Anthony Robbins seminars of the 1980s or something. Right, yeah. 
but so he's this self-help guru who runs this place called the Psychological Research Institute that seems to be some kind of combination of a psych- uh, like an actual psychiatric care facility but it's also like the Scientology Celebrity Center. It's like both of those things together. Yeah. It, except in an enormous industrial complex yes. that is actually a, the, the Xerox Center. Yeah. Yeah. And so Dr. Blake on TV says that this is the biggest show in the metro area. They don't say the name of the city, but it seems like it's a local show. And they're saying, you know, pretty soon we're going to go nationwide and worldwide. And he's selling solutions to the problems faced by everyday households. He says, you know, we, we face problems in this nation of teenage alienation, drugs, alcohol, suicide. And what's the answer? Well, the answer seems to be watching his tapes and watching his show. Was there another answer beside that? He might have said something, but I don't quite recall. Um, I mean, I kind of kind of left it as if maybe if you were to watch the full show, uh, you know, there would be more answers. But we're just getting a glimpse of it because it's ultimately not important. Like we just assume that there's lots of additional content. Right. Well, it, it, I think it is absolutely authentic to uh, self-help literature and self-help, and that includes video content and stuff, that at least half of the content of self-help literature is promises being made about how this is going to help you rather than the actual help content. Right. Though he's not selling vitamins or anything no. that I could tell. Uh, well, one thing I liked in the screen was it, it had that old thing where somebody's watching a CRT TV screen and uh, and it's clear that this is just really being filmed on the TV because you get that flickering effect across mm-hmm. the screen in the in the film that I I'm not positive but but I believe that's a problem of uh, synchronization between the shutter speed of the film camera and the refresh rate of the TV so if they get synced up in a weird or, or off way you get these flickers or rolling lines and whatever yeah I admired that as well yeah I, I always like to see it. Uh, but so anyway, it, it's clear that everybody watches this show. Everybody's parents are tuning in to independent thinkers with Dr. Anthony Blake. And the, the main thing that seems to happen on independent thinkers is everybody watches and then they just repeat verbatim whatever Dr. Anthony Blake said to said to tell them to think independently about. <laughs> uh, so the the teen girl goes up to her room and she's putting on makeup and she's clearly – you know, I think she's experiencing some of this teenage alienation that uh, is being talked about on the show. But then she starts seeing crazy stuff in her room. Her teddy bear starts weeping blood. And then these clawed hands burst out of the TV set in her room and then out of the closet door. And then there are wall tentacles everywhere and they're all flopping around. And I like that they're these nice, slimy, real puppets all just flopping all over the place. Uh, her yeah, mom... Oh, sorry. Very Zool-like. Very Zool-like. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, no Dana, only Zool. Only Zool coming out of the closet and the TV. And then her mom comes up to her room and her uh, and a tentacle from out of the wall attacks her mom and starts choking her mom. And the girl tries to help her mom by, like, stabbing at the tentacle with some scissors. But then there's this, like, realization that actually this was all a hallucination and actually she has just stabbed her own mom. And then we see, uh, like, the mirror that she'd been putting on makeup in. There's a brain on the other side of it hammering at the glass, and then she just jumps out the window. So I think we're getting some kind of brainwashing indoctrination process that is causing people to hallucinate tentacles and monsters all over the place that will uh, cause them to, to stab their parents. Yeah, the what I got from it, and I think maybe they flesh it out a bit later, is that the 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 mind control that's going on is that if 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 you accept it, if you give in to the mind control, then you're just control. You're just like all the parents. You're like mm-hmm. one of the zombies. But if you're a true free thinker, if you're resisting the brainwashing, then that's when the hallucinations occur because yes. your, your mind is fighting back. So you know she's an emo teenager. She's not going with the script, and since that's not happening. Uh, the hallucinations kick in and right. she's killed by the whole process. Right. Because she's like, I don't want to watch Dr. Blake, mom. I just want to listen to the cure. <laughs> and of course, ends in tragedy. Yep. So then we cut to our, we meet our young hero, uh, Jim Majalewski, and he is a turbo twerp. He is very, the way I would describe him is that his personality, he has two personality characteristics and those are lust and pranks. 
Right. Uh, I was watching with Rachel and she said he was radicalized by Mad Magazine. <laughs> yeah, he does have that, that, that vibe to him. And yet at the same time, we're told that he is one of the smartest children, uh, one of the smartest teens in this in the school. Yeah. Like he's, he's brilliant. He's like, it's almost like he's too brilliant to fire, even though he's a complete pain in the butt. Yeah, there, there's a point later on where one of the vice principals is meeting with his parents because because James has been naughty at school again. And they're like, he has one of the highest IQs in the school, but he is bad. <laughs> and I'm like, wait a minute, you're comparing all of the students IQs in this school? How I, I didn't realize that was a common uh, practice in high schools. I mean, maybe the Canadian school system. I don't know. Uh, maybe. Well, so anyway, when we first meet uh, Jim Majelovsky, he gets into his car in the morning to drive to school. And I think he drives by the house where this horrible scene we just saw had taken place the night before and there are police everywhere. And the announcer on the radio, the DJ is like, well, we just had three more murder suicides. And now here's Joan Jett. <laughs> <laughs> and we get a rock song. And then I thought this was funny when Jim actually arrives at school. The scenes are so quiet. It is really unnerving. So you see lots of students standing around, but there's no chatter sound effects to, to fill out the environmental noise of the scene. You could just hear a pin drop. So it's really mm. unsettling in a way that I'm not sure it was supposed to be. Interesting. Yeah. But also, so we meet uh, Jim Majilewski's, uh girlfriend, Janet, and despite Majilewski us being told that he is very smart and an actual independent thinker, he is not smart enough or at least not disciplined enough to do his own homework. And he has to copy his girlfriend's homework. Right. Yeah. So there's not a lot, not a lot, to, lot to love about this guy <laughs> <laughs> during the inter introduction here. Yeah. Oh, and then also before he goes to class, he goes into the bathroom and he gets out of his pocket a container that is labeled like pure elemental sodium. So this is metallic sodium, which uh, I'm sure we've talked about this on the show before, that if you combine pure elemental sodium with water, there will be extremely uh, – uh, I guess you would call it an exothermic reaction. It will cause uh, – it, it will basically explode, catch on fire, and it, it's really bad. He gets out this pure sodium tablet and just puts it in the toilet and flushes it, which causes the vice principal in the bathroom to become doused in water. And the vice principal suspects Majilevsky of being responsible for this. But he's just like, hey, what about innocent till proven guilty? Uh, we should stress, just like the movie itself stresses, that you should not try this at home. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. If you, yeah. Yeah, the, the closing credits. It's the first thing you see, like not even a – before you see a single human credit, there's a disclaimer at the end of the movie that is like, do not put sodium in your plumbing. <laughs> Extreme injury could result. Yeah. So seriously, don't do it. Yeah. But it's funny to imagine who, – so who was the legal counsel for production of The Brain, 1988, who told them they had to put that in there? I don't know. I'm guessing just another, is another big brain in a tank that's right. just like watching the film. It's like, nope, nope. Disclaimer on that. <laughs> that's all right. Uh, but I guess it is actually the sodium in the toilet sequence that leads to the parent-teacher conference where we find out that James has one of the highest IQs in the school, but he is very badly behaved. And they tell him that it is your attitude that is causing your antisocial behavior. But fortunately, the teachers and administrators, they've got an answer. And the answer is he's got to watch Dr. Blake's tapes. Yeah. I mean, it's really it's 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 a um, it, it, this was going to work out great. We have the, like a leading uh, figure in self-help that's based in the same city. And he has these tapes. He has this center. Uh, let's hook Jim up with some help. At some point, somebody says, Dr. Blake wouldn't be on TV if he wasn't good. <laughs> Uh, but, Solid. Yeah, it's perfect logic. Yeah. And so they send Majilevsky to the Psychological Research Institute. This is where we first get into this big, interesting building. And of course, while he's there, he's wandering around trying to get, you know, get processed, get his paperwork done to meet with Dr. Blake and I don't know, get diagnosed or find out how he can have better behavior at school. And so we meet a few characters along the way there. We meet a person who is a patient at, at the PRI who uh, seems to be suffering from some kind of hallucination. And then we also meet George Buza, who – what is the, the character's name actually? It is Verna, I believe. Hmm. Okay. I, I don't remember that. I just thought of him as Buza throughout the movie. But Yeah, Buza is better. We meet Buza. And then Majilevsky goes in for his session and – 
it, it's hard to describe exactly what happens here. So he meets Christine Cossack, the, uh, the nurse there, and they hook electrodes up to his head. And do, do you remember the sequence of what exactly happens here? I'm a little fuzzy on this. Yeah, it's 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 a weird sequence. It's it's actually pretty pretty effective because yeah, they're hooking him up. There's some she's asking him questions, and they they're showing him a video, right? And then oh oh, I know they're they're trying to brainwash him. Actually, they hook him yeah. up to the electrodes that are secretly, unbeknownst to him, in the other room, hooked up to the giant killer brain. Right. Uh, though I guess we haven't seen the brain kill anybody. And so I think what they're trying to do is just like indoctrinate him into becoming a, a psychic thrall of the giant brain creature. So they've got the electrodes on him and they're showing him a video of Vivian, this lady like holding an apple, but then they're trying to make him see it as a baseball. But I think the implication is that because Majilewski thinks for himself and doesn't just do what other people tell him, he doesn't see the baseball. He just sees the apple in her hand. And then he instead he starts having horny hallucinations. Right. That suddenly she's topless. But then she's also stepping out of the television uh-huh. uh, into his physical space. And this is definitely a moment where we get very videodromy. You know, definitely strong videodrome vibes in this sequence. And somehow in, he ends up meeting Dr. Blake here, and it's clear that this kid is not going to be be effectively indoctrinated, and he gets creeped out and he leaves. And then back in the brain room, we have Dr. Blake and Vivian and Booza, and they're all hanging out around the brain in its green tub and talking about what's what's just happened and why the indoctrination did not take effect. And she gets frustrated. She's like starts complaining about the working conditions in the brain lab and is like, well, we can no longer work together. I'm leaving. Uh, and so you're thinking like, oh, good for her. She should go get a job in a non you know, brain psychic thrall center. Uh, but then the brain, whoops, it opens up its mouth, its two hemispheres, and it just gobbles her up and then grows a face. Yeah, that's how it goes down. <laughs> that pretty it's much pretty, cover it. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, no. That, but it's it's I, I, it's a great sequence. Like uh, it, it's a sequence where um, a, mon- a rubber monster suit eats a woman mm-hmm. entirely, like with her legs, uh, you know, kicking out the back. Uh, it's very reminiscent of a lot of uh, old horror monster movies. So it's again uh-huh. a sequence where you can really you can really see how much love they had for these older like fifties and sixties monster films. Does the brain burp? I don't think it burps, but it hmm. it well could have, and it would have been totally appropriate. Okay, so after this, we see Majilewski leaving, and he is driving his car, and there is a steering wheel tongue attack. I think what's happening here is that now that he has resisted the brain's attempts to indoctrinate him with the electrodes, now he's just going to have continuous hallucinations of uh, of the brain trying to kill him that will in reality cause him to actually like wreck cars and stuff. So the steering wheel comes off in his hands and it starts spitting out a, a tentacle tongue at him and it causes him to wreck his car. Yeah, that's pretty much, that's pretty much what's happening, which, which is a great, uh, I think it's a pretty great little premise, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, tying into, to actual issues of like teen alienation, you know, that we often see uh, reflected in these horror films where teenagers are going up against the adult system of their, their local town, you know, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's, it's pretty, you know, wisely put together. Yeah. So Majilowski goes to meet his friends. He goes to meet Janet at the burger bar where she works, and he's just immediately hallucinating tentacles in the pickle jar and stuff. Uh, Mm -hmm. And also their other friends are there. They've got a couple of other friends. I think one of them is named Willie. And he he's freaking out in the burger bar, but George Booza catches up to him and Booza comes in and drugs him, takes him back to PRI. <laughs> this was a whole sequence where um, my, my wife was, was briefly tolerating this film. Uh, <laughs> uh-huh. I was watching it and uh, and I had commented to her. It's like, I don't I don't think Jim's going to be able to defeat this brain. Like Jim is losing hard <laughs> yeah. to the to team brain at this point. <laughs> But he's an independent thinker, so we can at least count on him to to, to come up with outside-the-box solutions, which he does in the end, sort of. Yep. Uh, so, so we're back at PRI again, where we just were, and this time Janet has to come to the rescue with Willie to uh, to get him out, and so somehow he escapes his room. I think he runs into the patient that he was talking to earlier, who sneaks into his room and trades places with him, letting him out. 
Yep. And then and then uh, Janet and I think Willie uh, are busting him out, and then Willie gets eaten by the brain. Right, like the brain attacks them in the boiler room of this place, and it just gobbles him up. Yeah, the the brain requires underlings clearly, but yet mm. is very competent. Uh, on its own, if it needs to lash out at somebody within the the Xerox facilities here, right? Nom 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 nom. And then we get a we get a, a part of the movie that I thought was just maybe my favorite part, which is just George Buza chasing Janet and Majalewski for I don't know a solid fifteen minutes. Yeah, He's, this is that full bore running. Yes, from there. yeah, <laughs> just running after them, and then they get in a car and flee, and he's chasing them in the car. At one point, George Buza chops off a cop's head with an axe, <laughs> and then yep. a, a, another police car arrives on the scene, and he start Buza's flagging them down, but he's got the axe in his hand. Yeah, it. You get the impression that David Gale's character, the 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 doctor, just told him like, "Look, we got it. We this town is brainwashed. You can mm-hmm. do absolutely whatever you need to do. You need to chop the head off of a cop yeah. in broad daylight by the roadside. Do it because uh-huh. the brain has your back on this one." Yeah, and so he flags down the cops and seems to get. Yeah, I think he's like, "Jim did it. Mad, it was Majalewski yeah. that used and he's this axe." <laughs> Um, so they're on the run for a while they go into a house and they come across a lady who is just happens to be watching independent thinkers on TV again. It seems like all anybody in this town does is just watch this show all day. And it's David Gale through the TV starts psychically communicating directly with her saying like, how many times has your husband refused to watch this show? If he wants you, he must watch me. I think this should be our next next time they ask us to do a promo for the podcast. We should do it like that. We should say, how many times <laughs> has your spouse refused to listen to the Weird House Cinema episodes? Be yeah. assertive. Oh, right. We, we should in, uh, enforce like uh, cult separation policies on, on our <laughs> listeners. Like fans, you either bring all of your friends and family in as listeners themselves or you cut them off. <laughs> I'm just kidding. So, don't, please don't do yeah, that. Don't do that. But, but this is Mrs. Woods. And so do we next see her go outside and try and convince Mr. Woods? Oh, this was the vice principal earlier that yep. Majalewski did his Mad Magazine sodium bomb on yep. and and was telling his parents about his bad behavior. So now he's out building a deck in his backyard and his it turns out he won't watch this show with his wife. Uh, and then his wife comes out and kills him by shoving a chainsaw into like his stomach crotch area. Yeah, because he refused to listen because he's like, look, I told you I just don't like it. And she's like, all right. And then she kills him with the chainsaw. Yeah. Uh, fun little extra bit of connections on these two. The actor playing Mr. Woods was in the 2000 um, adaptation of the X-Men. Oh, and, uh, who did and he Buzo, play? Um, he played like somebody attending the Magneto at some point. Um, oh, okay. It's just some bit part, uh, I, I believe. But Booza was also in that as a truck driver. Mm. Um, and I, I can't help but wonder if they put Booza in it since he was, uh, you know, the, the voice of Beast in the cartoon. <laughs> but then... Oh. Oh, go ahead. No, no, no. You go ahead. I was going to say the other connection is that the actor playing Mrs. Woods here was actually in a David Cronenberg film. Really? She was in The Fly, and she played a nurse. Wow, interesting. Uh, Well, I like how after she kills her husband with the chainsaw, she starts like – she flags down a police car. I guess they're just driving by all the time, and she's like, Majalewski, cut my husband in half. (laughs) So they're just blaming all crime on Majalewski. He's omnipresent. Everything that happens goes wrong in the city. It's like, oh, light bulb burned out. Must have been Majalewski. Yeah, the brain really is controlling everything. So they uh, end up Janet and uh, what's his name and Majalewski end up going to their high school, which should be empty because it's a Saturday. And there's a scene where Janet calls her dad on the on the phone, who is a fan of the Dr. Blake show. And she's like, Dad, we're on the run. And, and he's been brainwashed. He's just like, that boy is dangerous. He's a psycho killer. Despite being on the run for their lives in standard movie logic, they decide to stop and have some romance on the floor of the chemistry lab. Yeah. And then there is a brain attack. But it turns out it's just a dream. And Majalewski wakes up on the floor at the school. Uh, unfortunately, he when he goes looking for Janet, he finds her watching independent thinkers on TV. I don't know why she decided to do that, but she has now been hypnotized and she thinks he's a murderer. 
So she pulls the alarm, summons the police, and then there's another chase scene. And this gives rise to, I think, the weakest part of the movie, which is a long, padded-out car chase that you can tell it looks like they shot additional footage for to make it even longer. Majilevsky grabs a car, I think, from the auto shop class and drives away, and then the cops are chasing him, and they just drive for a long time. Yeah, yeah, it's easy to kind of tune out during this part of the film. But it's leading to something great. Well, yeah. Well, he eventually drives his car off of, I don't know what this cliff was supposed to be. He drives his car off of like a 10,000 foot drop. <laughs> yeah, we almost get that classic yeah, car uh, exploding at the bottom of a canyon scene. Toons is the driving cat moment. I, I'm a little skeptical that there are drop offs this far in Ontario. <laughs> But, of course, this is a standard, you know, horror thriller structure. So you know what's going to happen. They've got to go back to PRI and face the brain. So Madge goes back and uh, they're about to do a big broadcast at this place that will send the brain's control signal out into millions of viewers and seemingly hypnotize the whole world. And the brain is communicating with Dr. Blake and, and Booza through these readouts on a screen. And it's like Majelivsky is here, but it spells his name wrong, like I mentioned earlier. And I love how it it's got this interesting syntax. The brain says things like, words are the tools of any fool. I want action, three exclamation points. <laughs> Really, those are the type of signals that your brain is sending to your feet, your your hands, uh-huh. uh, in any part of your body at any point. It's just like, fools, move for me. Yeah, yeah, motor control. <laughs> so the brain tries to do a few things. It tries to give uh, Majelewski more like Randy hallucinations in order to throw him off course, but that doesn't mm-hmm. work. And then he somehow Majelewski runs into his parents. It looks like they're having a party in this place. And uh, but and they're fully brainwashed now. They're just like my son, the psycho killer. Get him. Mm-hmm. And so it all comes down to a big confrontation where finally in the end, how do you think if you just had to guess you, the listener, how does Majelewski kill the brain in the end? If you guessed sodium, then you are absolutely correct. <laughs> so what does he do? Well, well, for one of the first things that happened is there's a big showdown on the set of oh, Independent oh, Thinking. Oh, I can't believe I almost skipped yeah. that. I'm sorry. No, what, what happens here? Okay, so it's, it's the big moment, right? This is the uh-huh. big broadcast. This is going to be the one that takes over the world. Mm-hmm. So uh, Jim, Maj here, he, he, he gets on the stage and confronts him. Uh, and, um, you know, Gail tries to, uh, the doctor tries to, 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 you know, to, to win him over one last time with a, you know, small evil monologue, mm-hmm. but he's not having any of it. So Jim punches him and it's a real humdinger of a punch because uh-huh. it punches his head completely off his body so and good. there, and there's green goop everywhere. And then we realize that he's not even human We're we're not sure because there's at least one point in the film where someone's saying, what would I told you if I told you that Dr. Blake is an alien? So maybe he's an alien. Maybe he's some sort of like flesh Android made by the brain or serving the brain, or perhaps Dr. Blake is an alien and the brain is actually his brain. I don't know. You work it out for yourselves. Uh, we're only we're only given so many pieces to play with to try and build this puzzle. But at any rate, his head is punched off and it rolls over and it's in a puddle of green goop and reminds us all of Reanimator, uh, in which David Gale is often just ahead as well. Wait, I can't remember. What happens to Booza in the end? Does something oh, happen Booza to him? gets eaten by the brain. Okay, okay. Yeah. So he wasn't yeah. whatever Dr. Blake was, Booza was not like that. Booza was just an earth human with red right. blood. Yeah, he was just a, a, an eager, uh, perhaps brainwashed underling. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, he ends up, he's chasing them, chasing the, the kids and the brains after the kids. And for some reason, he runs into the brain and the brain is like, I can't take it anymore. You're so delicious. I'm just going to eat you. And he eats Booza. Yeah. So the elemental sodium goes into the brain's mouth and it explodes. Yeah. And it's a big fiery, like fireworks explosion it's pretty Uh great Uh, oh and of course he uh uh, uh, rescues his girlfriend janet so they're okay in the end Uh, but then we get a stinger after that when it seems like evil has been conquered and everything's okay again but then we just get a stinger of 
it's like a it's like a triangle shaped wipe on the screen that mm-hmm. just fills the screen with the brain going like rah, 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 rah. yeah and like chasing I, it lunging at you out of the dark and i don't know what it's supposed to mean this was like wait was it not killed after all it's not presented in the context of any scene or anything it just shows you the brain at the end i i feel like it was like it's kind of like a casting call it's like ladies and gentlemen one more time the brain wasn't, wasn't it awesome wasn't <laughs> yeah. it the best part of this film and everyone's like yeah yeah and then you're just roll credits really really good and the, oh, but before it gets to the credits of course there's the warning about not using sodium like you saw in this film yeah Especially because the very ending of Videodrome, if you'll recall, is that the main character dies by imitating an act of violence that he saw on television. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah. But been a while since I've seen Videodrome in full. I, I have a copy of it. I, Criterion Collection, in fact. So. Yeah, I've got that too. Yeah. Okay. Monster Science. All right. Well, you know, there's there's not a lot to go on here. We've got a big old brain with tentacles, and as it grows, it develops eyes and teeth as well. And so, to a large extent, you know, again, it's just a great schlocky monster suit. It's a manifestation of humanity's terror at being a brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then the, the film does seem to be flirting with the idea of humans versus brains as well, you know. Uh, your you versus your own brain, you versus the brains of others, especially on the the other side of the media uh, lens here. So when considering a brain that grows eyes and teeth, I can't help but think of uh, uh, this little, like, rather crude little bit of dialogue in uh, William S. Burroughs' Naked Lunch. Um, uh, this applying to another part of the anatomy, but but here we could easily apply it to the brain. Like, the brain is 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 getting to where it can eat, it can see, it can chew. It doesn't need the rest of us anymore. Like, we're seeing this brain evolve, and in doing so, like, the brain is kind of becoming less dependent upon the on bodies mm-hmm. and so it's like we're almost like we're watching the film not as brains but as bodies oh what if the brain in this film is not an alien from another planet but it is just straightforwardly a human brain it is a human brain that has been freed of the constraints of the rest of its body and is thus as alien to us as a creature from another planet would be right you need and you need it, it it's in the going to end up going up against creatures that are more ruled by their body like teens you know they're going right. through <laughs> yeah. all those changes you know they're hard to control uh-huh I do like that the movie has decided there is essentially an equivalence between actual independent thinking, uh, because Majilevsky resists the brainwashing that everybody else succumbs to, and like having a Mad Magazine style sensibility, you know, being mm-hmm. into pranks and bad behavior. Yeah, and and in a way, it is kind of uh, well, it's kind of well done in the film that the idea of of some of someone being really upfront about being an independent thinker and encouraging you to be an independent thinker could conceivably be a way of trying you to think a very particular way that, uh, yeah. that lines up with the speaker's uh, wishes. Well, that's so. This movie is in many ways very dumb. It is very dumbed down Cronenberg in a way. I, I, mm-hmm. I would agree with that. But I think one aspect of it that's actually pretty perceptive and good is the satirical aspect about the TV show being called Independent Thinkers. It's a show that is just straight brainwashing, telling viewers that they're practicing independent thought. And that kind of thing happens in reality all the time. I think about how often uh, you run it. I just to pick one example on a certain issue. Uh, you often find people who are repeating uh, totally false disinformation talking points like against climate change, you know, saying mm-hmm. climate change is not real. And there, you'll often find that these people are repeating talking points verbatim that you've read elsewhere as if they're just copying and pasting them. But it's all couched within I'm the person who's practicing independent critical thought. And all you people who believe in climate change are just brainwashed to go with the mainstream, you know? Yeah, it's like if someone refers to other people as sheeple, yeah. you can often guess exactly what the, the, the key bullet points of their worldview are. Right. And it's generally just a, a, a matter of reversing other bullet points. Right. Yeah. Uh, no, yeah. I mean, of course, in reality, we, we are big fans of independent critical thinking. I think that's one of the most important parts of, uh, of having a good life. But- yeah. But talking about the fact that you practice independent critical thinking is no guarantee that that's actually what you're doing. And sometimes it means exactly the opposite. Right. Yeah. I mean, to a certain extent, it's just like any term can become then used uh, by a disinformation campaign or being or used to sell something, et cetera. Mm hmm. 
So I, I absolutely buy this satirical aspect of the movie. The world, especially today, is just full of people who are constantly almost mindlessly repeating talking points that have been prepared by other people without thinking about them critically. And while doing so, they are congratulating themselves for being able to think independently, unlike the people who disagree with them. Yeah, it, it would be interesting if they remade this today, if somebody mm -hmm. remade it and they, you know, they, they put some thought into some of these themes. I wonder what direction they could go in. <laughs> would Dr. Blake have a podcast? That would be interesting. <laughs> oh, God. Or may, maybe he'd be on YouTube. I'm not sure. Well, one pretty dead, uh, dead on signal that you're dealing with somebody who is not actually encouraging you to practice independent thinking and may only be using the rhetoric of independent thinking without that being the substance of their message is someone who presents themselves as the answer to all your problems, as Dr. Yeah. Blake does in the movie. That, that's your, your number one red flag, really. Yeah, that, yeah, Dr. Blake has all of the answers. Uh, yeah. So be afraid because there's probably a, a giant brain in a vat somewhere just itching to gobble you up. All right. So 1988's The Brain. Uh, if you've listened to, the, to all this and you're asking yourself, how can I see this, this wonderful film? Well, Shout Factory has a really nice Blu-ray of it out that, uh, that's, you know, that you can order its, its imprint, uh, seemingly, complete with commentary tracks from Hunt, Zaza, uh, Brosnan, uh, plus some other interviews and features. It looks really solid. It looks like a really jam-packed uh, special edition uh, Blu-ray. You can also rent or buy this one digitally where Wherever you get your movies, I rented it on Amazon Prime, uh, but yeah, you can find it pretty much anywhere you get that stuff these days. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 